Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. Okay, this new development. This new development may uh, allow some organs to be transplanted without the need for immunosuppression, which I think is a critical new uh, development. So I never thought I'd share that with you. This uh, brand new news that isn't uh, yet available on uh, in the literature because it just just came out this week. Okay, anyway. I had a, had a question about the uh, the repairs that may be done on a on an organ. What what type of repairs are you talking about? Well, uh, one would be. If, for example, there's an in, uh, infection, you can treat an organ with antibiotics and eliminate that infection. Or if it's damaged, uh, you can actually uh, uh, repair the organ and uh, get it to heal. Uh, so, uh, so, so some organs are repairable, and I guess some aren't, but. Uh, the, that's the kind of uh, damage I'm talking about. The damage that from, from uh, uh, even if you could have a benign tumor, it could be removed and fixed on the machine. Okay. I did check my uh, email list. You're on the list. So maybe you can check your spam folder just in case. No, I did. It's not on there. I didn't receive it. Mm. At howard.edu, right? Yeah, I got your uh, Chris, but I did not receive the article. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, those are two. And then, uh, of course, this week uh, they had an excellent article on uh, on uh, on, of course, the that article on the repair of the liver. But they also had an article on beating the heat. We talked about heat exhaustion and heat stroke last week, but they had a very excellent article on uh, uh, heat stroke, how to, how to prevent it, as we talked about, and also how to know when you have heat exhaustion, and uh, what are the warning signs, and uh, uh, how, uh, and, and also answer a question about uh, uh, that uh, somebody raised about uh, How much water should you drink and when you should drink it and that kind of thing uh, because it's uh, sometimes people just drink 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 but I think uh, one of the things that Daryl had suggested was and that's that's true for people who have normal kidneys and that is if you uh, uh, if you if your urine is clear yellow light yellow uh, watery then it means that you're not dehydrated. On the other hand, if it gets yellow, brown, dark yellow, dark brown, then you mean you're dehydrated and you need to drink a lot of water. And also, yes. Is there a recommended amount of water that we should take in each day? And if we fall well below that, would it have any negative effects? Yeah, I think one to two liters a day is uh, reasonable. For most people, when it gets hot, 
then you, you may need more. And uh, uh, one of the ways to tell if you don't have kidney trouble is uh, your urine will be clear or a light yellow. On the other hand, if you are, uh, have kidney failure, then <laughs> you, you don't have the capacity to concentrate. So, so in that situation, uh, it, it will be difficult for you to know. So, so uh, the best advice is to uh, drink. Drink if you if you if you are if it gets hot, whatever you drink, whatever amount you used to drink, drink more than that. The temperature at which uh, you have to worry about is, you know, for example, I was in Phoenix, Arizona. It was 114 degrees, and at that temperature, you can fry eggs on the sidewalk. Mm. So, so uh, when you get over 100 degrees, then you should be in a place that has air conditioning. And if you are not in a place that has air conditioning, then uh, you you need to find a place uh, because uh, just like uh, uh, you can fry eggs on the street, the, your your tissues uh, burn up as well. So. My son and granddaughter, they drink to me an enormous amount of water each day. They have, um, it's a supposed name brand container and it's metal. And to me, it looks like a gallon almost, at least close to it. And they fill it up all day long. And she takes hers to school so much so until when she got ready to graduate, they told her, Kayla, you will not take that thermos with you to the graduation. <laughs> and it's a fat metal thing. And, but I, on the other hand, I can start with the regular plastic bottle. What's that, 16 ounces? Shamefully, the next day, I'm still sipping from that. And um, my family is getting on me and I'm trying to be aware of it. I just don't take in a lot of liquids, which is totally the opposite of them. They'll fill this container up at least three, four times a day. And it goes where they go. It's like an extension of them. Um, so I guess I'm the one that needs to do more. I'm just wondering what bad effects am I having? And you spoke about the color of the urine. That's not necessarily the case for me. It seems normal, I guess, even though I know I'm not taking in water. Well, then you're not taking you're not taking in too little water, then. because the sign of uh, the fact that you're not taking enough water is when your urine turns dark. Okay. And you're hemoconcentrated. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's a sign. Uh, as long as the urine is uh, light yellow, that's mm -hmm. a sign that you're adequately hydrated. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and if, if you stay in an air conditioned environment, uh, then the heat exhaustion issue does not, uh, does not become a factor. Okay. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Callender and everyone. Uh, this is Elizabeth. One research that, um, that I use a lot, uh, recommend, and everything is everything uh, that is suggested to us, as well as coach, is, to, um, is backed by a medical and scientific board, but it's also we often have to say it's for the average person. And it is suggested that at least one half of their body weight 
should be contained water. Oh. Uh, also, uh, oh, by the way, Dutch Canterbury, I see Dutch Canterbury. Yeah, you have any comments about uh, heat, heat exhaustion, what to do in uh, this hot weather? I'm sorry, I just came in at the end of the conversation, but certainly, I, as you were saying, that staying hydrated is important. Um, everybody, you know, it's not just water. People think we drink just water, but there are other things that we consume that will add to the amount of liquid that we're, that, that our bodies need. So while you may be drinking water, then you may also be consuming other things, other forms of liquid that can add to your total volume. So sometimes we underestimate how much we're able to, that how much we're consuming. So you have to look at everything. And sometimes we say, even think about uh, the gravies or the soups or other things that may have liquid in them that will contribute to it. But certainly what one, you know, then they're young and healthy and your kidneys are working well, then they may, you know, what goes in comes out. The only thing with drinking too much water is making sure your sodium, it doesn't drop your sodium. So. Uh, from that perspective, if there's, they're tolerating it, it's fine. And if you don't feel like you're dehydrated and you're, like Dr. Kellen said, your urine is, is nice and clear, then that may be appropriate for you because you may be getting it in other forms also. Thank and you. I think a, a point that, that Velma made that uh, sometimes is not appreciated is that you can overhydrate. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as she mentioned, hyponatremia or low sodium uh, can cause a lot of problems in itself. So yes, you can overdo it. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, but for the most part, if you're drinking a lot of water and, uh, and your urine is yellow, then you're, you're probably not overhydrating. But uh, overhydration uh, can cause as, as many problems as dehydration. Uh, so either, neither extreme is desirable. Uh, I think uh, last time we talked somewhat about uh, heat stroke and we didn't talk much about heat exhaustion, although Daryl did mention uh, how he had uh, demonstrated heat exhaustion at one point, but there are extremes of heat exhaustion as well. Uh, uh, and some, sometimes it starts off as, as cramps and uh, then sometimes, uh, and I think one of the things that uh, John Buchanan mentioned is that when you, when you stop sweating, you know you're in trouble uh, because then uh, uh, you're, you're likely to go from heat exhaustion to heat stroke. And either of those conditions is associated with uh, uh, falling out or dying, as a matter of fact. And so some of the early signs of uh, heat exhaustion are uh, first heavy sweating, increased heart rate, dizziness, as Carol uh, had mentioned before, headaches, fatigue, and just not feeling right. And uh, uh, the, when, when that happens, you need to get, get away from whatever you're doing and get into air conditioned environment as quickly as possible. <clears throat> and, and, yes. Yeah, I have a, a list of signs of heat exhaustion, okay? Right. Heat exhaustion, not, not heat stroke. Heat exhaustion right. includes right. heavy sweating. Right. Cold, pale, right. and clammy skin. 
right? Fast, weak pulse, nausea or vomiting, muscle right. cramps, tiredness right. or weakness, dizziness, right. headache, and fainting. Is that right. what happened to you, Daryl? Yeah, those are all the signs of heat exhaustion that come before. So if you get any of those, then you know you need to get an air-conditioned environment and drink a lot of fluid and stop doing whatever you were doing. Sure. But the, These are, since, since we're getting ready to go into to July and August, which are uh, months in which uh, uh, we get up to temperatures of 100 and above, it's good to keep these uh, uh, comments in mind. Any other questions about it? Thanks, John, for the laundry list. Yeah, the other question is, Dr. Callender, um, Dr. Scalabrary talked about other things that can add water. Well, I was full of watermelon before I had my liver transplant. And <laughs> operating room, they couldn't even close me up because I was too full of water because they had a watermelon eating contest. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they, 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 uh, that's interesting. The other thing that you have to keep in mind is if people are drinking too much water, then salt tablets could be helpful because the uh, side effect of uh, overhydration is uh, hyponatremia and salt. Salt tablets would help if, if that is a concern. Dr. Callender, did, didn't we have a... Um... Well, somebody reported about a person that died from drinking too much water. Oh, it's not uncommon. Yeah. Because uh, uh, drinking too much water causes low sodium. And low sodium uh, is, 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 it can be a fatal condition. Yeah. But salt tablets would prevent that. Yeah. Uh, when I run marathons, it's usually around mile 20 that I'll take a salt tablet. But you know, along the, the race course, I'm drinking a couple of ounces of water every 10 mile, every 10 minutes. Right, right. Okay, let, let's go to the uh, slides. By the way, uh, the first thing I saw when I got in Phoenix, Arizona was this poster with Velma Scandalberry on it. <laughs> so it was, wow. good to see you. it was good to see you there in Phoenix, even though you weren't there, Dr. Scandalberry. <laughs> what poster was that? It's a, a kidney poster that has you featured on it uh, uh, as the first African-American female transplant surgeon. It's a very nice poster. Oh, uh, wow. How nice. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it was very, very, attra very attractive. It was excellent. It was nice to see you there, even though you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, now, this is an article on bird flu. Uh, uh, and uh, and, I, and I think it was an article to let you know that uh, uh, the flu can come from various sources, uh, zoonosis, and the bird, water birds uh, and other birds uh, have this avian virus uh, that can be transmitted to people. You can see pink eye can cause it and other symptoms from this virus that can lead to respiratory failure and death, but not very common, but it still occurs. Often the symptoms can be uh, 
feeling badly, feeling uh, sick, uh, and uh, it's interesting how uh, droplets of dust from birds and other animals can can affect us. Uh, and of course, the Spanish flu, which is well known that uh, uh, in 1918 is, of course, the flu that uh, we all know well as the coronavirus is uh, now the pandemic. It, it's 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 only areas where you have a lot of birds, but but uh, uh, most of the birds don't give us this the avian flu. But in Colorado, they uh, found it. But it's very it's not common, but it's something that uh, you'd be aware of. Now this just uh, showed everybody's, just about everybody's been test, has tested positive from the presidents to the uh, vice presidents to Tony Fauci. And uh, uh, he had uh, uh, positive and uh, symptoms as well and isolated and worked from home. Uh, so that uh, while vaccinated, you still uh, uh, test positive, as, as we all know anyway, and get reinfected. In case anybody wondered, this was just to authenticate the fact that uh, this happens. And reminds us again that the purpose of the uh, vaccination, though, is to uh, prevent hospitalization and deaths, and that the re reinfection can occur, but the likelihood of uh, being hospitalized or dying is, is minimized. That's the purpose of the vaccine. How many people in this on this call have gotten COVID despite being vaccinated? Yeah. Uh, I have same thing for John Buchanan. I have. That's what three. Anybody else? <laughs> and Janice and uh, yes. anyone else? Not me. Anybody else? Welcome back, Kevin. You're welcome. Missed you. Missed you. I uh, didn't want to get too hydrated at uh, at the golf course today. <laughs> Okay. Hey, I didn't realize Fauci was 81 years old. Good, doing well too, huh? Yeah. I got I felt good when he got it because I was one of those. Well, I did all the right things. I won't get it. I protect myself. I'm in a bubble of people. And when I got it, it was like shock, but it proves anybody can get it. You can protect yourself, you can wear your mask, you can get vaccinated. And luckily for me, I didn't have any bad side effects. And I guess that's why uh, my problem was I stayed positive for 11 days. So I don't know if that's normal, good or bad, but I wasn't sick with it. Oh, no, I, did I, I did 
Doctor, does the, uh, the the vaccine now protect against the variant that's out there now? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, I have so many more people I know that's infected now than the last mm -hmm. two years. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, now, one thing that is problematic is that those who get the, the new infections may or may not uh, be protected against other variants, but okay. the but the vaccine uh, is reported to uh, protect you against all of the variants so far. Okay. And uh, that's interesting, though the the, the fact that uh, uh, was there's about 50, there's seventeen people on this call. And uh, so far, is it only four, three or four that have been reinfected so far? Hmm. I, I'm surprised. I would, I would have thought it would have been more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I noticed that uh, uh, just about every, everybody as of July uh, will, no longer will be uh, uh, required to be masked and everything will be optional as of July the 1st. Uh, it's interesting uh, how, how far we've come. Uh, although, uh, what will be the price we pay? I think because uh, the number of people who are vaccinated is approaching 70% and beyond that uh, this will become less of an issue until the fall, I guess. But we shall see. Well, after July, are they still going to require mas masks at medical facilities? Ah, that's a question. Now, so far, we have received no information in medical facilities. We still are requiring masks. So I, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, but other places are, are doing away with their mask and masks are now optional at most places but as you pointed out medical facilities are still requiring masks and that's important because as an institution a medical institution you don't you don't want to be liable for someone saying i got it in your hospital absolutely yeah. and and that's that's why joint commission and department of health go around and require that the hospitals uh, wear masks and uh, uh, not only the mask, but the uh, the uh, glass thing protected. Yeah, so that both yeah, of the shoes. Yeah. Yeah, face shields. Face right. shields, because yeah, hospital acquired infections are, are monitored and you get dinged for them, so including COVID. So for all patients coming in, even if you're not vaccinated or vaccinated, they're probably going to be checking to see whether you have it, just as they check for, to make sure you don't have any uh, hidden skin wounds or breakdown. The goal is to make sure you, you're not bringing anything in. Yeah. And Dr. Calder, I was in uh, Children's Hospital, Children's National Medical Center on Tuesday, and uh, masks were required, but some people bringing in children did not have masks on and they were not uh, accosted by the uh, security people either. So that was, that was a little strange for me, but I have a performance there tomorrow 
and everybody has to do a COVID screening. Everybody has to have their vaccination card and, uh, and wear masks. Even if we're outside at, in the hospital, still have to have a mask. <laughs> yeah. well, that's the safest way to be. Yeah. Okay, next one. Now this is interesting because uh, uh, this is uh, a question that has long been asked. How do we uh, prove that we have immunity? And so uh, these scientists have created a test that indirectly measures your T cell response. Mm -hmm. That lasts long after antibody levels fall off. So uh, the, when this is gonna be available is another story, but they do have that test that can tell whether you can fight off the infection or not. It's a new finding. Uh, that uh, it doesn't say when this will be clinically available, but uh, at least we have it now. So, so sometime within the, this year, it may well become available. It's interesting that mo many of these new things that we talked about earlier in the program are in the Journal of Nature, but uh, uh, generally don't get to the public. Uh, you know. Dr. Scannerberry, what did you think about the, uh, the, I don't know if you were in the program when I talked about the new liver uh, thing that can keep livers alive for three days. You have any thoughts about that? Oh, the normothermic liver perfusion? Yes, yes. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Certainly it, it allows for, there were some papers presented at the ATC that were looking at, talked about the outcomes of these livers and allow for many more to be used that would have been turned down uh, in terms of being able to see how they work. You know, usually the ones that you're, <clears throat> when you go to a donor and you do a biopsy and it has more fatty tissue than you want, or you're not sure whether a lot of those kids, all of those livers don't pr perfuse well, or may, they may perfuse, but they don't make bile. And so you end up having to retransplant the patient. And so the advantage is that, yes, you can then use the normothermic perfusion to see whether that liver is really going to um, secrete that bile that looks normal and be able to biopsy it, you know, within 24 hours to decide whether you can use it. So it does allow for a lot more questionable livers that would have been discarded because nothing worse than putting a liver in and then have it not work. And then you're looking at it urgent retransplantation, which then causes the patient to get encephalopathy. And even if you replace the liver, may not wake up. So certainly it's a good avenue for um, use, allowing for use of more livers that would otherwise be discarded. I'm not sure I, the article says something up to 70% of livers are, are not used. That number is really high. I don't know that I agree with that. I uh, use the term encephalopathy. What does that mean? Uh, generally, with uh, once the, the liver is not functioning, then there's a buildup of ammonia. And so when the liver in that acute phase after you put the liver in, uh, and now you have dysfunction uh, of the liver and it's not able to clear all the, the waste products that occur, then you get buildup in the brain. And so the patient is not able to wake up 
uh, because they, if they weren't in an induced coma, they would otherwise have will go into a comatose state because unless you, because the liver is not working. So you can't, you, from what, sometimes they'll bring the patient back and put them on bypass, but that's not generally feasible. So then the urgent state is to be able to replace that liver as soon as possible um, to get rid of all that uh, ammonia that's built up in the system. Generally with a awake patient, you will give them lactulose and try to help clear the, the ammonia but it can be devastating in that uh, if you don't get that liver replaced, the, uh, yes, you can help reverse some of the clotting abnormalities that occur because of uh, the fact that the liver is making those clotting factors, but it's the brain that suffers generally from prolonged uh, liver dysfunction. What is the prep process for an organ, we're talking about livers. Of course, I'm familiar with liver with my husband, but um, do you just take it out of the donor and put it in the recipient? I know you don't wash it, but it's the process. <laughs> you perfuse it, you keep it. You may, when the goal is if you go to look at the liver uh, and because the liver is going into the same location, uh, generally you want it to be not too much of a size discrepancy. Sometimes you can go to get a liver and you realize that this is a, uh, a large barrel chested person um, and the liver is too big because it protrudes out of the, the rib cage and the person you are putting it in doesn't have that same frame. And then on this, uh, in that location, you may decide uh, uh, this liver is not going to function. This liver is not going to be appropriate for that person because I'm not going to be able to get it into that space or you may get there and the liver is, uh, looks like a little bit, you know, we have a, what we call, a lot of patients suffer from non, non-alcoholic steatosis, fat buildup in our livers now, even people who are not fat. And so you get there and the liver looks a little bit yellowish from too much fat, so you may biopsy it to make sure that the percentage of fat is not more than 30%. Uh, and then you may decide not to use it or you may decide to use it to someone else, but then you're gonna remove you're going to remove that liver. You're going to put it in a, a container with uh, keep it and keep it cold down to four degrees, and then you're going to flush that liver. You do do it flush the liver before you take it out while it's in the body. After everyone agrees it's the right time, you put ice around it during the so that you can keep it cold while you're doing all the dissection to get it out, and then you flush it again on the back table, and then you put it you you sort of wrap it in the sterile containers and you transport it to, in a cooler to wherever you're, the institution that you're going to be using it in. I often wondered what is that whole process? My husband had a transplant out of state and we received a phone call at approximately seven o'clock, I guess it was 7.30 in the evening and we had to go to North Carolina. We weren't even at home. So we had to rush, get home, grab a few things, go to North Carolina. And I remember getting there at 1.30 in the morning, but he wasn't transplanted until approximately 6 p.m. And it just seemed like such a long delay. I was oh, wondering. <laughs> it's not, the delay is that when let's say they know you're going to get the liver. And so they want you in the hospital. So want you to come in. 
so that they can draw your blood work, make sure you not have any infections, make sure you clear it for surgery. But in that meantime, wherever the donor is, mm -hmm. you have to remember there's a coordination between multiple teams. Let's say the heart's being taken, the lungs are being taken, the liver's being taken, the kidneys being taken, the pancreas mm -hmm. is being taken. So you have at least four teams there. Some teams may arrive before others, uh, and but nothing can start until everybody is there. Uh, and the heart team, uh, usually there may be a delay in the heart team. And sometimes the donor surgery itself is, is often coordinated around the time of the heart recipient. So we may be there all at the table waiting, you know, you do your dissection, you're ready to go. Uh, and the heart team, the heart cannot come out until the recipient on the heart end is in the room and that operation is started. So oftentimes if you're in the donor surgery waiting, the recipient on the heart end may not be ready. So everybody waits until that heart patient is ready. You may wait two hours or three hours dependent to coordinate with the heart because the heart can only be out four hours. So wherever they're flying, they have to make sure that's minimum time. And so it's important to do that. So we may end up sitting on a bench waiting for that to happen. Uh, and then, so once the heart team is ready, then everybody there, then we proceed. Uh, and the dissection is all ready. We put our clamps in. Uh, and you perfuse the, the organs with the cold solution to flush the blood out of them. Uh, and once that's done, then the heart team takes the heart. So everybody still waits for the heart team. That may take 15 minutes or so, they take the heart out. Uh, once the heart is gone, then the lungs come out. Uh, the lung team takes theirs. And while they're doing that, all the other organs are surrounded with ice to keep them cold after they've been perfused. Mm -hmm. And then the liver comes out. Uh, then the kidneys and the pancreas, kidneys are the last to come out. Then they're all packaged uh, and depending on the team, how far away they were, they then fly back to their location. Um, and so once they get back to the location, then if it's in the middle of the day, uh, generally you're waiting for an operating room to open up unless you have your own specific transplant room. Uh, and so therefore, we know that the liver, the liver may not have come out till early morning, depending on when the team went to the OR. Most of these group group team recoveries are done like four, five, six o'clock in the morning uh, to coordinate with getting back to the institution. What? What? Thank you. That's what isn't what isn't uh, known is that uh, in the early days of our liver transplant program, Dr. Canterbury came down from Pittsburgh and helped us with the liver transplants. I have a question, Doc. What is the requirement for a liver transplant? Is it blood type? Is the HLA match? Generally, it's blood type. Blood type and, and body size, generally, you want mm -hmm. to make sure that it is not too small to fit in. You don't want it sort of flip-flopping if the space is too small. <laughs> And you, you want, it depends, some people have very narrow rib cage. So you look at the, the size to make sure it's not gonna be a discrepancy. Um, generally with a bigger person, you can, um, you can get a liver in there, but if the person is small, you can't get a bigger liver into a smaller space because it goes in under your lower rib cage. But the, the blood type is the most important factor. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 
You know, I'm thinking this whole process would make a fascinating documentary film. Are there any films of the process showing the donor and up to four recipients? Yeah, I'm sure there's some on YouTube. I have to check it out. You mean the actual donor process and the OR taking it out? Yeah, taking the, the organs from the donor and then uh, following up with uh, including footage of the recipients getting their transplants and uh, then after recovery for, for the recipients. Yeah, generally most people uh, frown on that in case things don't go well. <laughs> so they may film it and decide to whether or not they save it for a later date, but oftentimes we tend to, we'll do it in a living donor and sometimes there are, there are documentaries of separate uh, portions of the surgery, you know, either that, uh, on, and the implantation. So yeah, there's, there are different operations you can find that are on, online, but not all together. Uh, I think one, one of the bravest uh, surgeons I've, I've known is Samuel Koontz, who did his live donor uh, transplantation on TV. Uh, and yep. that, that was remarkable. <laughs> Remarkable. Although there have been others who've tried it and they've had uh, uh, dire consequences, but uh, Sam was brave enough to do it on television, and, and it was successful and resulted in many others uh, wanting to donate. Okay. Well, that's interesting uh, segue because uh, uh, John has been telling us about his friend Chris, who has not yet joined us, but. Maybe one day he will join us and we can talk more about that. Now, this is this uh, article is about uh, the fact that you can get long COVID uh, with a breakthrough infection. And that's uh, uh, something that uh, we don't much, know much about because uh, long COVID has not been something that uh, many people talk about. We talked about it last week in terms of the fact that uh, symptoms may uh, cause so many consequences in the different organ systems, including the brain. Uh, and uh, we, we're going to subsequently encounter an article that uh, addresses the uh, uh, mental health consequences of long COVID, uh, which uh, can be very serious. Uh, so it, it, the answer is that it reduces, but does not eliminate completely the risk of long-term uh, uh, long COVID. But uh, uh, since you, you've got a vaccine that's about 85 to 90% effective, then of course that means that it reduces the likelihood of getting COVID uh, that gets requires hospitalization or death or uh, long COVID, but it can happen. So the, the uh, more we learn about this, and, and, and one of the articles will tell you that there's a number of people who have symptoms of COVID for as long as uh, more than a year. And uh, some of them have uh, had mental health consequences, which we'll talk about when we encounter that article. Well, that, 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 it's interesting that whatever you do, that's great. 
you know, people who try to mess it up. And uh, these COVID scams, uh, this is just an article that talks about over the decades, uh, there have been different uh, scams that have been associated with the different pandemics. Uh, you can see that during the Russian flu, <laughs> the good old castor oil and uh, uh, some cures of electric battery, bronchial inhalers and so forth were used in uh, even a rubber ball with cabalic acid. And, and some of these uh, uh, treatments were worse than the disease. Uh, and so uh, this was just to alert people that uh, uh, misinformation is nothing new and frauds, uh, nothing new. Uh, and uh, uh, actually talk about a, Actually, chloroquine, which you remember somebody famous talked about that as a treatment, which uh, it's not. But anyway, uh, there's been all kinds of scams and uh, even using Viagra and Xanax as treatments. And then, of course, the fake tests issue that uh, occurred uh, so that uh, you have to Whatever we do for good, there's somebody out there who's gonna try to mess it up and make a scam out of it, make some money out of it. Uh, so, uh, so this is just to alert you. Uh, sometimes when they say it's too good to be true, that's accurate. <laughs> and that's what scams are all about. Uh, getting people to think that some things that aren't true are true and taking advantage of um, yes, Bonnie, you want to say something? No, I was just oh. saying, mm -hmm, that's true. Yeah, so, well, anyway, just to alert us that uh, fake tests, fake vaccines, fake treatments. So. And then not to speak of the charities, of course, the, one of the greatest ones is the uh, Black Lives Matter charity fraud, which uh, caused a lot of attention. And then of course, now there is interesting, there is a legitimate COVID funeral assistance program. And uh, uh, the only issue is that you must have the diagnosis made. Uh, and if, if you do have it made, then you can get assistance. Okay, Sylvia, sorry. Gotta go. Nothing like keeping your teeth healthy. Um, now, this is an article I wanted to, to share because uh, often when they talk about physicians making a difference, uh, they leave out the black doctors. Well, they didn't do that in this case. I wanted to, you to see some of the black doctors who have uh, made a difference. Well, this is Jerry Abraham, who I'd never heard of before. And it talks about his contribution uh, because he was willing to uh, demonstrate altruism, compassion, and all the other things that are part and parcel of what a good being and a good doctor is all about. This talks about his contribution as an AMA member, uh, as you recall, initially the AMA would not 
permit black doctors to join them. Uh, and as a consequence, the National Medical Association was created. And uh, uh, they have, of course, since uh, changed their MOs and black doctors are now allowed to join them. This is a female doctor who uh, has been recognized uh, uh, because blacks and women were late uh, in terms of being recognized for their contributions. Uh, and so this is a, a woman who was recognized. Uh, yes. One thing that's interesting is that you mentioned that there was the American Medical Association and then they wouldn't let blacks in. So they got this organization, the National Medical Association. Well, the exact same thing happened in the legal field. They have the American Bar Association, which didn't allow blacks in. And now they have the National Bar Association. Same that's thing. And also, yes. they have the same thing in demo too. Yes, and, and right. the same thing in music too. They had the uh, local one six one. They wouldn't let blacks in, so now they let blacks in, and they call it uh, local one six one dash seven ten. That's so sad. Human nature is so sad. This is uh, Lonnie uh, Bristow, who was the first black president of AMA in 1995. He's uh, now been around for more than 50 years and is, it was the pioneer in health equity and policy reform, uh, uh, Lonnie Bristow. Uh, was a real pace setter back then. And uh, this is the LGBT Health Award that was given to a black uh, woman who uh, did outstanding work in leadership and policy making, LGBTQ policy. So I thought it was, it was, it was nice to identify we've come a long way in terms of recognizing people who uh, made a difference. And of course, I guess the, the among the latter things to be recognized is the LGBTQ uh, issue, transgender issue. And it's interesting how they now use as a, a badge uh, queer, which in the old days was thought as not to be desirable, but now it is gone full cycle and they use it liberally. Dr. Callender, um, with the LGBTQ uh, community, th doesn't that bring on a, a whole new set of diseases, uh, especially uh, sexually transmitted diseases and other diseases? Well, that's not new. <laughs> that, that's not new. That's old. As sexually transmitted disease has been with others as long as there's been men and women. Uh, so, uh, no, not a new set, no. Um, now, this is a, a 
any other questions about it? Because uh, this is uh, something that we've always known uh, that racism and stress accelerates uh, immune diseases and immune aging. And this study just uh, de demonstrates, proves it once for all that, that everyday stresses and discrimination uh, is the risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease and, and infections. And so this paper uh, demonstrates once and for all that uh, racism, is, racism is not healthy. It's not good for those of us who are targets and those who practice it. It's not good for them either. I think Martin Luther King was among the first to uh, preach that, that uh, racism isn't good for us and it's not good for them either. That's true. But it's just that we are the, the uh, uh, we're hurt the most by it. Uh, and, and it is true that, it is true that it's a certain amount of stress that we don't uh, associate with it, but certainly as you go through your daily life dealing with the microaggressions and the racism, it takes a toll. And I think for many of us as Black people, we get to the point where we say, you know, I don't know how much of this I can take once you're able to walk away from it. Um, and I know for me, in leaving, you realize that my your health has been so poor that when you leave, decide to you move away from the situation, then you feel so much better, and you're able to say, "God, that was that was really stressful." Well, I think few recognize how much you had to go through, not only being black but being a black woman. So that uh, that uh, another level of uh, stress that uh, uh, maybe is not as appreciated as it should. I think that's why uh, 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 the recognition you received as the first African-American uh, female transplant surgeon uh, is important. Oh, thank you. I feel like my career has ended earlier than I wanted it to, but I also felt like I needed to live more than I needed to be as transplant surgeon <laughs> well you you've been right talking about, you've been talking about it for about 10 years uh, Velma would call me and talk about you know I'm, I think it's time for me to retire I said well at that time there weren't any, there were many other African-American uh, female transplant surgeons so uh, so she couldn't do it but uh, anyway it was interesting what you've had to go through uh, I remember when I first met you at Pittsburgh uh, uh, what you had to endure is just beyond belief. But anyway, you successfully negotiated, so congratulations. All with God's strength and mercy <laughs> and his grace. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, this is an article that's not new to us. Uh, I think uh, Daryl and many others on this uh, group uh, recognize how unhealthy diets associated cause not only obesity, but uh, uh, chronic diseases. Uh, and uh, what often is not recognized is that uh, uh, this is an issue that is an immune problem as well as a mental health problem. Uh, and that uh, uh, those people who are uh, BMIs that are 
30, 40, and 50 are people who uh, have emotional issues as well. So it's not only the uh, uh, slow BMI, but it's also other factors. And the psychoneurological uh, aspect of uh, obesity, uh, as well as psychoneuroimmunological aspect of obesity, is often unrecognized and unappreciated. But uh, it is nonetheless, uh, and it talks about the stress, discrimination, poor sleep, unstable housing, and all that. Uh, how, uh, and of course, uh, insomnia uh, is a, plays a great role in, in overeating. Any other thoughts, ideas as we talk about these yeah. stressors? Dr. Calder, um, what? I was uh, a little unsure about that definition of food insecurity. What, what, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, food insecurity means that uh, you may, uh, you know the, what food deserts are? Yeah. Uh, in other words, eating the wrong kind of food because of, of uh, economic issues. Yes. Uh, Okay. And uh, so sometimes we forget that uh, people of color uh, don't have the opportunity to, uh, uh, because of economic and other reasons, to eat the same kind of food that people who have uh, social, uh, who are economically uh, well suited. And so they have to eat at McDonald's and those other places mm -hmm. because it's cheaper. And uh, to me, that's a form of, of insecurity that leads to uh, obesity. The and food me, that's that, good for you is expensive and the cheap food is, is bad for you. Right, and it, you know, the fact of the matter is that the food insecurity uh, is contributing to an influence by the things that so many factors that makes it, when you say insecurity, you don't know where your next meal is coming from. So you don't have enough income, you're unemployed, right. Uh, right. you're disabled, you live in an area where you cannot buy the things that uh, the food is not accessible. As, and so you, know, you may be living in a food desert uh, that may not necessarily have the things you the good food. So you live in a food desert when there's only the Chinese and the Chinese rice and there's uh, New York fried chicken and there's all the, the unhealthy food. So you, you don't have access to decent grocery stores. And one of my patients, we that was saying, you know, you need to eat an apple and yogurt today. A day he goes, they don't sell those at the bodega. So where am I supposed <laughs> to go get those? Right. So those are food deserts. But the food insecurity is that just as you don't use like having a of home and house insecurity. You don't have a place to live. You don't have that money to buy food. You're disabled. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. And so those things contribute for the inability to buy food is limited. And it's also could not be, it may not be available. So unfortunately that is so much of uh, a lot of our uh, underserved and marginalized communities live in those areas where there's lack of quality foods or even access or not even maybe have the means to get those foods. 
Yeah, one of the best examples of food insecurity are the homeless, because right. obviously they don't have money to buy food, but the food that they do get, you see a lot of homeless people that are uh, obese, uh, because the food that they do get, uh, it's it's greater fat in, in the food, and, and it goes more to uh, greater body fat. Right, when you can go get, you know, Biggie size for a dollar or get the dollar meal. They're not greatest meals, but you, they're cheap. Yes, and also I have worked with um, family and friends as a coach, and I've I've um, demonstrated how if they bought thirty dollars worth of fresh vegetable, how they wash, freeze it, steam it and come out, uh, this, this thing that um, fast food is cheaper than fresh food, uh, you have to prove to them that they get more for their money when they can wash it and freeze it and steam it versus go and get that. But in some places, I've talked to some customers in some places, they the only place they have is Walmart and all the vegetables are limp. And so they have to eat something. So they either eat can or fast food. Right. I've even had to teach them how to look at like frozen beans. Frozen beans has less soda, frozen green beans has less sodium than anything else. So the fresh frozen green beans is better than the canned food and the fast food. And so it's like reteaching people to think differently, you know. Uh, thinking that, oh, if I buy this fresh food, it's so expensive. But when you wash it, freeze it, steam it, uh, you come out way ahead. Yeah, uh, something else that come out way ahead. I got a lot of friends. I shop at Whole Foods Market. I have a lot of friends that call Whole Foods Whole Paycheck because the prices are more expensive than, uh, than the other uh, grocery stores. But, okay. The deal for me is, uh, since I don't eat meat, I pay more for fruits and vegetables at Whole Food, but overall my grocery bill is lower because I don't eat meat. Well, I think this is very instructive. Uh, the next article is, uh, explores the link between mental health and cardiovascular disease. This is something that in the past has not been recognized that uh, if you have a, a bipolar major depressive disorder, schizophrenia, that you have a mortality rate two to three times higher than that of the general population. And leads to a 10 to 25 year decreased life expectancy. And uh, in the past, I'm not sure that uh, we've recognized the, the price you pay uh, for mental illness and, and why it's so important that these illnesses be treated because uh, uh, we die from from the cerebrovascular and cardiac mortality rates that are increased. Uh, it's, it's probably something that uh, we've not recognized before because uh, we just say somebody's mentally ill and don't uh, uh, Think about the constant long, the short and long-term consequences. And uh, so to me, this means that it's 
so important to recognize, of course, depression uh, results in many instances in suicide and uh, schizophrenia and, and uh, bipolar cause many other problems. So I think uh, uh, in addition, those people who have these issues also smoke more, drink alcohol more and abuse more and, and, and have le less physical exercise. And so these are all uh, reasons why these people re require more attention, but get less attention. And why, you know, uh, Biden talked about the need for uh, mental health treatments, but this is another uh, level that uh, identifies uh, why avoiding and putting those people with mental health issues on the streets, just throwing them out there is, is very uh, unwise. Of course, uh, the group that uh, really is uh, frightfully abused is the veteran with the PTSD and they are killing themselves uh, uh, at a rate of uh, one every hour, I think is what they said. Uh, so that uh, uh, suicide and other, other issues result in the increased morbidity and mortality. More heart disease, more everything. What can we do? We need to have a system that allows for mental health to be treated. And right now, many psychologists won't accept insurance. Uh, and uh, which means that if you only have insurance, you don't have cash, your mental health issue may not be able to be treated. So, so I think this is a, an alarming problem that is uh, swept under the rug. Any other comments, if not? Uh, yeah, a lot of these, um, unfortunately, like you were saying, uh, a lot of these disabled uh, veterans and people who have mental disorders are on Medicaid, which doesn't pay for therapy or appropriate therapy, uh, adequate therapy. They get these um, through the disability office, you know, they have to go through such hoops to to get appropriate medical, uh, uh, mental health treatment. And then there's just not enough mental health facilities or workers or advanced practitioners out there. You can't, we had this question in one of our uh, sessions is that, you know, there are people who are in dire need um, of finding someone to find a mental health therapist and there's just not enough around. It's just not enough to, um, at least even within the black and brown communities, it's hard to find people say, well, I need someone who's sensitive to my needs and can understand me, but they just aren't enough. You make a good point. And uh, that, that brings on another issue that the people who need the uh, mental health uh, facilities and so forth, and they can't pay, they can't afford it, that within itself can cause stress and more mental disease. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, 
That's our Achilles heel, among others, <laughs> in our society. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, um, Dr. Callender. Um, one, one thing that happened to me as a retired teacher is I had 25 oh. students and out of that 25, 10 had some problems and they've been having those problems since they, um, it was recognized as having those problems upon entering school, okay? And they went all the way through the system and they got to the sixth grade with me. And I knew in sixth grade, I was the last homeroom teacher that they would have that someone would look at them holistic. And I kept trying to get service for that group, service for that group. And I got all this pushback, pushback, pushback. I even had one child that um, was going blind. And I had one child that would cut herself. <laughs> so I had, a, you know, it's just that I had the insight to know that something just wasn't right. And I kept working with the kid and, and the kids. And, um, and I went through the proper challenge and everything. And I had like, I lost your paperwork. It's a good thing that I always kept an extra copy of everything I had. And I just kept pursuing it and pursuing it. And the parents was backing me up. I knew they needed help, but I just didn't know what particular kind of help. And even though I had 20 years of experience in the health field, that wasn't my field. And so I kept pursuing and pursuing it. And finally, the, the last week of school, someone from, the, uh, from DCPS came down and she happened to be a neighbor in my neighborhood. And she came to me personally to thank me for pursuing this because every child that I had submitted the paperwork on countless of time was diagnosed with some concern. And so um, we just have to, you know, constantly be uh, observant. An advocate, advocacy. We have to be advocates for when we see something's not happening. Not to calendar, you're talking, but you're muted. Yeah, okay. This is an article that talks, thank you. This is an article that talks about uh, the impact of social isolation uh, has on our brains. And the uh, uh, fact that during the pandemic, uh, social isolation became the buzzword. And uh, it's uh, devastated uh, young people. Uh, and actually the old people. And uh, <clears throat> sometimes we wondered, what is the price we pay for the social isolation? And now we're identifying that uh, there are actually brain regions that uh, demonstrate uh, that uh, uh, this is actually negatively impacting our uh, brain function. <clears throat> and that social interaction uh, aids and facilitates uh, maturation of the brain. And so groups like this and other kind of groups are very important to maintaining uh, normal brain function. And of course, we know that that's among the reasons why 
church attendance uh, is uh, uh, helpful uh, because the, you develop social groups uh, that uh, uh, help you. And it's, 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 it's also identified, as you can see here, that uh, those who are isolated had a 26% increased risk of dementia. <clears throat> and so there's every reason to recognize that. Uh, uh, and then that's another reason why why our, our pupils couldn't go to school anymore uh, were so often depressed and uh, suicidal uh, and, and also lonely. And loneliness is, 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 has reached epidemic proportions as well. And uh, this is particularly important for those who are older. So I guess the bottom line is that the, that the, we are meant to, to work together and uh, uh, not be socially, socially isolated. And if you are, there's a negative uh, impact upon your brain function. Any other comments that you might wanna make about something that is common sense, but uh, uh, may not have been as appreciated uh, since uh, the pandemic required it? I have a, a comment about uh, the social media aspect. Um, you know, uh, uh, video conferencing like we're able to do is a lot better than the, just the telephone, but uh, you know, the phone, Zoom, video conferencing, all that is better than being totally isolated. But a lot of my friends who use this, the Zoom platform are complaining that they want in-person uh, uh, relationships rather than the, you know over the over the internet. So, is there any uh, research into that? Why? Yeah, there's there's a lot of research that identifies that uh, nothing beats face to face. Uh, and uh, so the sooner we can get back to that, the better off we will be. With, with MOTEP, one of the things that uh, has helped us to be successful is the face-to-face -face contact. <clears throat> and uh, the social media has its place, but it does not replace the face-to-face -face and person-to-person -person contact. And, and many feel that uh, much of the reason for the increase in mass murders and all this other stuff is the lack of social interaction and, and the actual uh, lack of interpersonal relationships. It's nothing like a hug. <laughs> yes. Back on that, uh, you know, the face-to-face -face versus uh, virtual. Um, a lot of people truly enjoyed working from home over the last couple of years, and now they're being asked to go back to the office. And what I'm finding is that the people who have otherwise have good social interaction outside the office, they want to continue working from home because people working face to face inside the office, they can't get anything done because people are always wasting their time getting in the way of actual work being done. But then on the other hand, People who can't stand, uh, like say, uh, if um, a woman works from home 
Her husband's retired. She can't stand him, and she wants to get away from him to go to the office. <laughs> have those dynamics going on. <laughs> yeah, what about what about this one? People love working from home because they don't, you know, they they can work in their pajamas, a cup of coffee, whatever. But when work is over, then they go out and party in person. You know, go out to clubs and everything. They like that. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> now, this is, <laughs> in many ways, this is a uh, funny article in the sense that uh, the benefits of exercise in the pill. And uh, at first, when I read the article, I wondered why would you want to put it in the pill? But, they, but then you, you find that, uh, as it says here, older or frail people, uh, people who have a uh, osteoporosis, uh, heart disease, other conditions, may not be able to exercise. And so if you could find out what greatness that occurs from exercise and put that in a pill, that might be able to help those people who are fragile and, and couldn't exercise. So uh, I, initially I wanted, why would you not want to? But there are a group of people, small though it may be, who can't exercise. And so uh, if we could have what the consequences of exercise and put it in a pill, that's food for thought. Anyway, that's the essence of what this article is all about. Identifying the fact that physical exercise uh, is important for life, uh, but uh, uh, there are those who are too fat, fragile uh, and can't exercise, so what do you do for them? And this kind of is why they're the research into trying to find out if you can actually uh, mimic the consequences of exercise and put it in a pill. Hasn't been done, but it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, food for thought and it's research that uh, uh, could be uh, fruitful. Any other thoughts on that concept? Uh, Dr. Callender, uh, you know, they say that we are living longer nowadays. And one of the reasons is because of the uh, myriad of pills and things that we have, medicines and so forth, that's causing us to live longer. So this seems like one incident of that. You know, somebody 104 years old can't exercise and everything you give them this pill and they might get another two, three or four years out of it. That's the thinking. Hey, hey Dr. Callender, I sure hope our tax dollars aren't paying for this. <laughs> you know, anybody can just walk and stand in place. Or if you in, in, in a chair, lift your arms or, you know, lift your leg. You know, it's another way of trying to, I don't know, get, get around what you need to do. But well, I mean, I'm just appeal for exercise. Ah. Well, well, there are there are groups of people that can't do those things. They are small groups, but there are groups of people who, who are so fragile. And uh, as as uh, John said, if somebody's 104, maybe they can't get around. So I agree. For those who can, it, it's not it's tough to beat it. But for those who can't, maybe. Bill might be helpful. Well, yeah, I think 
exercising a pill is a great idea, uh, but one thing it can't do, it can't give you muscle strength. And uh, <laughs> at the end of that article, they were talking about uh, what increases the lactate levels in your blood. Um, and it said number one was sprint, sprint training, followed by resistance training, followed by endurance. And um, uh, usually, okay, when I run, I do speed work once a week, uh, which is sprinting. And um, I, I, I felt my best always uh, during the sprinting compared to uh, resistance training or endurance training. And the, think, about, think about sprinting. That's all the little kids do. It keeps them young, but they run. They, they, they just run short distances all the time. That's being a little kid. You act like a little kid, you'll stay young. Hello. Go ahead. When you allude that uh, we are living longer nowadays, how can you correlate this? saying with the fact that uh, in the Bible, we know people were living 400, 500 years. What type of uh, exercise or food were they eating in those days? I have no idea. Uh, we know that the first was 900, 900 plus years. And uh, of course, uh, I don't know uh, the, the uh, calendar they had in those days. And I don't know. Oh. 900 years is equivalent to uh, with our calendars, but uh, it's certainly clear that uh, after the uh, flood, uh, the, the length of life is shorter. Mm. Now, this is an article that talks about uh, uh, the, the dire consequences of sitting. Uh, Dr. Callender, I wanted to go back to you when somebody just said that after the flood, the length of life was shorter. That's because they were more stressful about dying after the flood. They were what? Were more what? They were more stressful and they were fighting each other. And they were, you know, after, after the flood, it was many more people after they populated. And so after they repopulated, uh, and then they were probably wondering, you know, after the stories of those who have passed on. So there was the intervention of stress. Uh, well, not exactly. If you read Genesis, it'll give you the uh, the generations of Adam, and it'll give you decreasing lifespans uh, all the way to um, you know I I, I forget which uh, biblical patriarch where it reached 120 years, but it went down from Methuselah, but it consistently yeah, from, right. Yeah, that's why I said by then it started to multiply. We got a four score and ten, or a three score and ten. We got right. that long with the flood. Yeah. Well, that's, that's it was just a joke. Don't take it seriously. Okay. <laughs> that's an interesting. If you want to contact me after the session about uh, why it went from hundreds of years um, and an antiquity and why it is uh, today, I can explain that to you genetically if you want to uh, get with me after the after the session. Now, this this is an article on uh, telling us that uh, in, in many ways, the bottom line is that uh, uh, sitting is the new smoking. And that uh, basically, 
uh, as and, and I think Dallas said this many times, uh, that uh, we walk too little and and we sit too much. Uh, and uh, our cardiovascular health uh, and our early deaths are a consequence of sitting. So, uh, and you see it affects us, those in low income, lower middle income, more than it affects anybody else. Uh, so, well, Dr. <laughs> yes. when we discussed, when we discussed the water intake, okay, if you drink mm -hmm. your required water intake, it's gonna make you get up and move. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's recommended that you move every 30 minutes. Huh? So we're going to give you a yeah. uh, Right. And so, so it's fun. It's going to have a balancing act. You know, you drink your water. You got to get up to move to do that. Take care of that. But that exercise, nothing beats that exercise. Okay. And, and I guess uh, so. Uh, in this group, there's not too many people who spend all their time watching television and all that stuff. They're out exercising, I hope so. Yeah, Dr. Calendar, I remember the, the podiatrist told us, right, to, uh, to for your feet health, make sure you stand up at least once every hour. Yep. Okay, is that the last article? Well, we have four to go. Okay. Okay. Oh, this is the uh, this is the article that talks about the the new storage technique. Uh, it's almost ten thirty. New storage technique, which uh, we talked about earlier, uh, and uh, it's interesting how with this new technique that we talked about, uh, that uh, liver was stored for three days, and uh, the patients a year later. Uh, so, and this talks about uh, the issue of the time it takes to get a result from a biopsy and other things, and how uh, uh, in the past, uh, the maximum was about 12 hours. Uh, and so uh, this could, uh, in this article, it talks about what uh, Velma had mentioned that 70% of donor lives are not used. I, I, I was not aware of that either. Uh, and and I, I'm not sure that that's accurate, but it's what it says anyway. Uh, I know that for all organs, it's uh, one in five, but I don't know about the specific uh, number for livers. So. Uh, and this was about uh, uh, recovering livers that were damaged still. Anyway, this is a revolutionary concept. Uh, this is, uh, I thought it was interesting, not because of the fact that uh, uh, the United States Supreme Court made a reasonable decision, but because in the past, we made some very unreasonable decisions. And so this is a good example of making a good decision, but uh, we've got to remember that uh, the Supreme Court uh, has made some horrible decisions in the past. 
And uh, so we've got to uh, uh, not rely on the Supreme Court doing the right thing. Uh, they did in this case because uh, uh, they did something that, that, that would be good for all children. Uh, but uh, also to remind us that uh, they also were in favor of uh, slavery and other things. So, so uh, let's not put all of our eggs in the basket of the Supreme Court. Uh, and this may be an ungrateful statement, but uh, uh, people of color have been victimized by the Supreme Court in many instances in the past and, and sometimes in the present. So, uh, food for thought. Now, this is an interesting article to me that makes no sense, but uh, a number of the scientists felt they need to rename monkeypox due to stigma concerns, which was mentioned uh, uh, last week. Uh, and so they are looking for a new name for, for monkeypox. Uh, to me, if it comes from the monkey, it should be okay. Uh, why that should uh, make people think about black people in Africa uh, and the fact that it originated in the Congo Basin and uh, has been identified more commonly in Africa uh, is not is something that is thought to be uh, stigmatizing. That's interesting. It's no more stigmatizing than uh, coronavirus came from China. So I did. So I'm going to uh, change its name. Well, you can. So anyway, they're trying to come up with a new name for it. It'll be interesting to see what the new name for it is. But they don't have a new name for it yet. Now, this is an article that emphasizes. Now, this is, this is tragic. 72% of men surveyed, they would rather do household chores, <laughs> including cleaning toilets, than visit their doctor. Mm. 65%, they try to avoid going to the doctor at all costs. And 37%. Yes, that prostate exam. Huh? That prostate exam. Nobody likes that. Yeah, that's one. They want, women don't like the vaginal exam either, but they get it. So that's that's a poor excuse. Thank you, Dr. Calendar. Yeah. 37% of withheld information from their physician. You know, and it's 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 kind of disgraceful that uh, we popularize the fact that men are are so uh, disrespectful of their own health and their families. And of course, the price you pay is that you you wind up having more prostate cancer. Although, let's face it, if you live long enough, you're going to get prostate disease with enlargement of the prostate or cancer. But among African-Americans, this is uh, even more a problem. And the earlier you make the diagnosis, the more likely you are to be able to successfully treat it. Uh, now, uh, it's interesting that we call genetics the next frontier of precision medicine. And it, well, it may be. Uh, we have to also recognize the positive as well as the negative aspects of genetics because 
many diseases that are genetic are not treatable yet. And uh, if you have a genetic disease that's not treatable, then that uh, may affect all aspects of your life. Uh, and so as we are able to treat some of these diseases, the, the benefit of genetic testing becomes more applicable. However, one thing is clear is that uh, in general, uh, uh, and I think uh, Velma and Katie X are uh, emphasizing the importance of men getting, getting health care because uh, it is so obvious to all that uh, that's one aspect of uh, the gender issue that is embarrassing is that men are not willing to go to the doctor and their wives have to drag them to the doctor, which is uh, said to relate. You forgot the part of screaming and hollering. Uh-huh. <laughs> Any other comments on that? Because uh, it's lamentable and uh, whatever we can do to get more men to take take seriously their health care, the better off we will be. You know, uh, Dr. Cameron, my um my doctor did not uh, recommend, she stopped doing the, the uh, digital exam. And then uh, I had to ask her to do the, uh, the, the PSA test. And I, I think that test may be expensive. I don't, I don't know if there was- It's not expensive. It's not? No. I don't know why, you know, I had to ask- Is she black or white? She was white, yes. Yeah, that's why, uh, because the data, uh, identifies that in white people, there may be less of a issue with uh, doing PSAs. And now to me, rectal examinations is part of a physical examination, period. Is uh, it covered by Medicare? Is what covered by Medicare? The, that uh, PSA test. Yes. It's yeah. preventive care. So Medicare is a Yes, it is. I asked because I've had some some friends say in the past that some some of the tests that they needed to have weren't covered by Medicare, and if they didn't cover it by Medicare, they weren't going to have it. Right, but that PSA, I don't believe is one of. Them. But uh, a rectal examination is is just part of the normal physical examination. Right. right. And. Uh, uh, even though one might not do a PSA, which I think they should do, especially in blacks, uh, uh, not doing a rectal examination is uh, uh, a breach as far as I'm concerned. But then uh, some people don't do physical examinations. You know, they want to do x-rays. So uh, that's food for thought. Velma, you have any thoughts on that? You still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. One of the things that um, we were talking about the lack of uh, rectal exams by the residents and on one of the recent grand rounds before I left and the attendants pointed out that uh, there's no need to do rectal anymore which I found quite strange um, sad yeah and so in that you know you can just scope the patient or do a PSA 
Um, oh, listen, you know, if you scope a patient, you may miss the rectal. There ain't no rectal. Right, right. And to not have uh, enforced that residents need to be able to palpate a prostate, I guess only if you're a urologist, it becomes important. But yeah, I was quite disappointed. Yeah, that's just sad what's happening to medicine these days and the, the lack of appreciation for the importance of a history and physical and complete physical examination. And it's lamentable that your doctor does neither the PSA or the uh, rectal examination in a black patient. That's, 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 it's difficult for me to, to hear that and uh, not vomit. Mm -hmm. Now, this article is, this is the last one? Yes, yes, I just okay. stuck this in. And we actually started talking about uh, uh, the uh, high temperatures and how, talking about, uh, and we talked last week about the importance of sunscreen and uh, uh, this is interesting for those who don't have air conditioning uh, to uh, run fans and uh, have ice, uh, uh, but I, I think it's no, when it's up to those temperatures, you really need air conditioning. Uh, and, and this is, goes back to Velma's um, point about uh, other things that keep you hydrated. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, we listen to John Tatum's watermelon uh, issue. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You know, like for instance, with um, our patients, let's say for patients who can't drink a lot, but want to stay cool in the summer months, they usually recommend, especially for dialysis patients, um, that they use frozen grapes because they're a source of liquid, but you can also have them in small amounts. So you don't realize, uh, so, you know, you, you stay cool. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, watermelon patients often don't, uh, often underestimate the amount of liquid in, in watermelon, cantaloupe, all those things are just generally full of liquid. These are little things that uh, help. Yeah. Okay, Daryl, Daryl. Not full Darryl. shower, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dal has told us about the beauties of cold showers, not cool, cold showers. And uh, we've learned a lot from Daryl over time. And this is another gem, Daryl gem. <laughs> uh, signs, here we go, the same sign that uh, actually John uh, Buchanan had quoted before and all of these uh, let you know that if you get any of these you you better get out of the heat in the cold zone all of those uh, of course uh, Daryl's exposure was dizziness and fainting for heat exhaustion okay all right that does it uh, 1030 out of that, and uh, it's been a great, great I've got a quick question for the group. I hope that you can give me an answer. Okay, I've got a friend that has provider, um, I'm sorry, employer provided health insurance, but had emergency hospitalization and has thousands of dollars. 
and out-of-pocket expenses. Um, what's the best way to handle that? You know, like I realized that you don't pay your bill in 30 days, they ding your credit record. So any suggestions, best way to handle it? Well, the first question I have is what type of insurance does he have? Third-party insurance does he have? I don't know the carrier, but you know, it's probably, it's, uh, it's probably employer provided. So which employed. means the employer puts the money up and that's how the insurance is when you have those high deductibles like this. Yeah, he may have the 80-20. Uh -huh. That could be, but all right, more did importantly, he have to pay, did he have to pay 100% of the $1,000 of out-of-pocket out of that's due right now. So how do you go about handling that? Do you okay. contact the hospital, work out a payment plan, negotiate lower uh, a lower payment by saying, you know, hey, I don't have it. What will you take? Um, are there any plans that you could contact that uh, will help you out on thousands of dollars of out-of-pocket? Yes. Uh, if, it's, if it's talking about the insurance paid 80 and his copay is 20, and because of COVID, there's also funds for that. And also he can contact his local government. And can the person use COVID funds if they didn't have COVID? Okay, but there's also financial system because of the circumstances that we're all in COVID and COVID has thousands of effect on people's lives. Okay. So you got, you got, you got that 20%, sometimes that his local federal government or the federal government has resources to uh, support him with that financial. And because of his uh, income, uh, they have sources for that too. Well, what, we don't know what his income is. Well, that's what he, he has to check. His local, he has to check his local area uh, government to see what health resources they have because they do have them. And the federal government has uh, resources for that. So he has to look at in addition to making some arrangement because see because i worked in healthcare and i worked in the financial most of my life the, the point is they not if you're a black america in certain states in certain hospitals they're not going to volunteer that information okay it has to be a seek and find and so those are the sources that you're looking for you're looking for assistance to help you with your medical bill through your local uh, community government and as well as federal government. So if you got a six figure income, but you don't have six figure savings, that means you're out of luck. You contact your local and federal government and they say, Hey, your income's too high. Go pay your bill. Is that what happens? You know, Daryl, I, I would uh, go to social media and start a GoFundMe page. A lot of people do that. Oh, okay. And it, it actually works. A lot of people, especially if it's a serious situation like what you're talking about. Any other thoughts or ideas? Well, at least yeah. have my, communication. My, my, my experience. Go ahead, Kevin. At least have communication between you, uh, between the patient and the uh, uh, and the institution to show you, show them that you're at least trying to get this straight. You know, just communicate with them. Not saying that, you know, and that's not the final, that's not the answer. Now it's going to pay the bill, but at least they may not put you on a credit report right away. And yeah. also in contacting with the hospital of the source, 
see if they know any financial sources. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's a good idea, thank you. Uh -huh. what, what I was saying, um, with my experience, when I was going through my cancer, uh, cancer treatment, they provided some additional um, financial resources for me. And I, was, I, had, I had Kaiser and they gave me a, an additional, um, some financial resources. So I, I paid for um, no medications, no nothing, you know, nothing out of the pocket, but, yeah, but they need to check with their provider Who's, who's there's like, you know, uh, maybe it's like a, a social worker or something that should have taps on other resources that they can um, can get tapped to and within, that, within, within that institution. Right. And also, you know, my daughter was telling me about the new Surprise Law Act. Okay. So there's resources behind that as well. Not familiar with that. Well, that, that law says surprise. You got a big bill, pay it. That's a law. That... <laughs> no, 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 no. That's a joke on that end, but no, no. Any other thoughts or recommendations? But that communication is so important. Yeah. Communication email, okay? You got to have your documentation. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And he needs to keep a journal of who he talks to, when he talked to, and telephone numbers, all information. So he don't backtrack and, okay? And by the way, I never said my friend was a man, but everybody assumed that it was. Well, good luck there. <laughs> We're trying to help, We're trying to help them out. He's a human being. All we want to do is help. I appreciate that. <laughs> I was just laughing at the assumption everybody made that it was a man. Because you were talking. You're a man. <laughs> yeah, but I, have, I mean, I have men and women friends, you know. <laughs> Daryl. <laughs> Any other comments to help Daryl with this situation that many of us could encounter? Because few few insurance companies provide one hundred percent coverage. True, absolutely. That's where the eighty twenty come in at. But and I think I think his problem is more. He said employer based. There are some companies that put money up for their employees, and they they're not they're not like under United Healthcare or Cigna or Aetna. They have their own company-based insurance based on the amount of money the employer puts up. That's a whole different thing. And normally those kinds of policies have the $1,000 deductibles, which means that you have to pay the first 1000 before your insurance kicks in. Is that more like what the deal is, Daryl? No, it's more like 80-20. Okay. It's just that when it's 20% of $100,000, it's a lot of money. Yeah. But there, there might be, there should be a cap, I would think. Right, right. And if this is his first illness, you know, he has not reached that certain amount. And or so she. it's all. Well, he's she obviously reached that, reached that amount. <laughs> 
But we're not going to say it. <laughs> so it's either he or she. LGBTQ. Yes. We're going to say human being, okay? We're going to respect all persons. <laughs> I assumed it was a man. Because uh, <laughs> men are out of money more, more so because women are, you know, get supported by men. Yeah.